just want to put a tiny little bit of context around what, what's happening. If you look at um, the way God made the world, everything's rhythmic. Everything has a shape. Everything's seasonal. Night and day. Four seasons. There's a sort of a a pace to life. Well, thank you. Sorry, Annie. I once sat in one of these seats on a TV show, but it was almost frictionless. And, like, literally, if I slightly clenched one buttock more than the other, it would just swing. And I was like, I could hardly breathe. Anyway, this one's uh, very good. Thank you. There's a rhythm to life. There's, the, 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 there's seasons. And, and in, in the Christian life, there are just seasons where um, we're invited by the Spirit of God to push into his presence in a particular way. And if it was super intense all the time, it just wouldn't be healthy. But, but when those times come, it's like my relationship with Sammy. You know, if we were just constantly, like, fanatically like romantically obsessed with each other, with steam coming out of our ears all the time. It actually would be a weird relationship, not a good one. There are seasons. I'm not, I mean, we're always in love. Don't, please hear me. I just need to clarify. But, 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 but there's, you know, you, you, sometimes you're hungry and then you eat and you're full. There are seasons. And it's the same in our relationship with God. And we believe this is a season for pushing into his presence. So thank you for being here to do that. And um, one of the scriptures that we've been thinking about together is Isaiah 40, verse 3, um, which is a, a prophecy that's then fulfilled in John the Baptist. Uh, and the prophecy says this, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the way. And... Um, I pointed out a couple of weeks ago that the punctuation is very important there. It's not a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It's a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The speech marks are before in the wilderness. In other words, the message is wherever the wilderness is for you, that is where you need to be preparing, getting ready for God to turn up. And so what we've been doing is looking at three wildernesses. So two weeks ago on Sunday night, I just did this thing about preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness of our own hearts. And you know, we could spend months on just that, but we talked about Psalm 24, who may send the hill of the Lord. He has clean hands and a pure heart. And I used as my historical precedent, my historical example, the Hebrides, the great awakening that took place there between 1949 and 1953, marked by holiness. And then last Sunday night, we moved from preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness of our hearts to preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness of the church. Anyone here notice that the church of Jesus Christ, particularly in the West, is, as my mother would have said, in a bit of a pickle. It's a bit of a wilderness. I mean, many, many churches are really in, in decline. Sammy and I were just in one the most rural Anglican diocese in, in England. And, you know, 
the average vicar there is trying to oversee between five and nine churches. And they said if there's more than 10 people in a church, it's doing well. And so there's something urgent about preparing the church for the Spirit of God to come, right? And so uh, last week, as we thought about that, I focused on Azusa Street and how in 1906, a one-eyed black uh, preacher called William J. Siebel um, started a 24-7 prayer room. The Spirit of the Lord fell, and that was the beginning of the charismatic Pentecostal movement. That boy did that renew the church. There's 580 million Pentecostal charismatics today in the world. That's one in 15 people on earth from that one prayer room just over 100 years ago. So there's something there. Again, we can spend months talking about how do we prepare the way of the Lord in the church. And tonight, as we just sort of bring this informal mini-series to a close and respond in just a moment, I want to think about how do we prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness of society. And I don't need to prove this to you. You all know that there's a, there's a wilderness out there. And Lindsay brought that very powerful word last Sunday about... Um, you know, people who, who, who are so broken, it's, they're, they're, they're dying because of the, 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 the mental health crisis. And I want to probably add to that also just people who are dying because they don't know Jesus, um, the ultimate death in our society. And so we're going to think together about that. And, and so uh, week one, we thought about the Hebridean Awakening. Last week, we thought about Azusa Street in Los Angeles and, and William Seymour. And tonight, I'm going to use as my example uh, the, the great John Wesley, Wesleyan Awakening of the 18th century. And it's appropriate because today is Palm Sunday. And uh, so as we, uh, we think of Jesus riding into the capital city, and so we're going to be thinking about how do we prepare the way of the Lord in our communities, in our cities, in our conurbations, in our uh, workplaces. And these three are quite helpful because the language around revival, which is often very confusing and not always very helpful, you could loosely break down to renewal, revival, and awakening. It's a little bit different in America, but in, in this country, what we tend to mean is renewal is the thing that happens in your own heart. You just get renewed in your relationship with God from time to time, and that's what's happening for many of us right now. It's beautiful. And then revival often is the church getting revived, woken up. And, and we're starting to, I believe, see that in certain locations. Awakening is often the language used for when a revived church starts to change society, change the world, so that the culture changes, the laws change, you know, the, the pubs and the schools and the university campuses and so on are affected. And that's why we talk about the Wesleyan or Methodist awakening, because, oh boy, did they change society. They, it wasn't just, you know, some really great, you know, outpourings in some Christian meetings Literally, um, some secular historians would say the only reason we've still got a monarch in this country today um, is because so many of the working classes came to know Jesus and started to get free of their addictions and started to get their lives together, that there wasn't a revolution in this country equivalent to the one that was happening at that time in France, where, of course, they then rose up and chopped off the heads of their monarchs. And this was, isn't me arguing for or against the monarchy. I'm just saying, talk about profound implications. Uh, 
of um, an outpouring of the Spirit. And so uh, I'm going to whip you through uh, uh, some slides here. And, and I don't want to take too long on this because then I want us to pray. But just take a look at these scriptures. First of all, Isaiah 43, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. You see the theme, it's the wilderness and it's the wasteland. Uh, we're not meant to despair even when things are desperate, but we are meant to admit when they're desperate. And now look at this one, and this is this scripture I'm going to begin and end with. Hosea 10, verse 12. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. And listen, break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. And so I want you to imagine what that's like when you're not just, you know, sowing in a nice prepared field, but you're going to like hard unplowed ground and you today it would be a tractor I think Clarkson's farm or whatever it is back then it, I guess it would have been a horse uh, pulling a, a, a plow and, the, and and furrowing the ground trying to break up the rocks and the hard impacted ground so seed can be sown I think that's a lot of what we are called to do in society I think that's a lot of what John the Baptist was doing preparing the way of the Lord and, uh, and he literally went out to the wilderness to do it. So let's look at uh, the, the John Wesley story. Here we go. Next slide. So uh, 1738 to 1759, we're going to look at three little phases of the Wesleyan awakening together. So the first one is that, uh, what's that, about 21-year uh, period there. Um, and uh, it, it, just an extraordinary time. 1727 had been uh, the Moravian Pentecost. If you've been around 24-7 or Emmaus for any length of time, you'll know all about the Moravians. The Spirit of the Lord fell upon uh, them in a, in a church in a place called Bethelsdorf uh, in what was Saxony at the time, which is uh, southeast Germany today. And um, the, the power of the Lord was released in such a way amongst them that they began praying nonstop, and didn't stop for a hundred years. And then after five years of night and day prayer, uh, they began sending out the first missionaries of Luther's Reformation. And they were the first to take the gospel to many nations on earth. And uh, they, many, many, many of them died um, carrying the gospel. But uh, they were the first to translate the scriptures into many languages. And uh, it all came out of this Pentecost, this outpouring of the Spirit in 1727. And one of uh, the implications of the Moravian outpouring is there were some crazy Moravian missionaries on a ship uh, crossing the Atlantic. They'd been out in the Americas, which, remember, were the, literally the Wild West then. Uh, and the, the, the Moravians were the ones who went to try and preach the gospel to the slave colonies in the Danish West Indies and were told, you'll have to sell yourself into slavery yourselves to take the gospel, and they said, okay, um, just feel that for a second. And this is incredible. They, they led thousands uh, to the Lord. It's one of the reasons why there was this um, amazing turning to faith amongst the um, appallingly enslaved uh, peoples of uh, that area of the world. 
And um, anyway, so the Moravians were zipping around uh, on ships and all the rest of it, preaching the gospel. They were all poor as church mice. Uh, but they didn't mind. They'd all been refugees anyway. And uh, John Wesley uh, had been in America trying to be a missionary, which is awkward because he wasn't really a Christian yet, and he was terribly bad at it. He'd fallen in love with someone who didn't like him. He was a bit constipated, uh, and he ended up coming back to England on the ship, really depressed and feeling like a complete failure. And then they hit this terrible storm, and they, everyone thought they were going to die. And he was meant to be this clergyman, uh, but he, wasn't, he didn't have a living relationship with Jesus, put it that way. And so he found he was as scared as everyone else of drowning. But there were these crazy refugees, these Moravians on the ship, who didn't seem scared at all. In fact, they were singing and worshipping, and even their children seemed to be full of the joy of the Lord. And uh, so Wesley was a bit embarrassed because he's like, I'm meant to be the educated you know, vicar here, and these people clearly know Jesus in a way I don't. And so when he got back to London, having survived the storm, he started attending Moravian Bible studies, and it was there at a Moravian Bible study as Luther's prologue to the book of Romans was being read one day that Wesley famously was converted. He said, my heart was strangely warmed. And that lit a fire that totally changed the course of uh, this nation. So that was 1738. Uh, by the way, after Wesley's heart was strangely warmed, he went straight off to Hernhut, to the Moravian hub there, where he was discipled by the leader of the Moravians, Count Ludwig Niklaus von Zinzendorf. That was where he learned about night and day prayer. He came back and started a night and day prayer meeting uh, on New Year's Eve 1738, and then they were praying all through the night in Fetter Lane, London, just off Fleet Street. And then at three in the morning, the Spirit of the Lord fell, and uh, that they, the, the, no, nothing could ever stop them again. They went out and started preaching all over the nation. And so 1739, the British awakening begins. So that's why this period begins 1738. Let's look at the wilderness of society at that time. Um, it was, bit, no, no, back one, please, Simon. Uh, five to 10% to were attending church at that time. That is a little bit lower than we have in this country right now. So it's easy to say, oh, back then everyone believed wrong. It was harder spiritually than it is for you in your workplace back then to be a Christian. Uh, they reckon, uh, this is the Anglicans, but about 50% um, of Anglican parishes had no vicar, no incumbent. Uh, so what I just described in Herefordshire uh, was worse back then. Uh, so again, people think there's some problem now. It was worse back then. And then there were only five Christian MPs. We have way more than that right now. You may think the politics is a bit of a mess, but we have loads of Jesus-following MPs and lords and ladies, members of both houses. So it was more of a wilderness back then than it is now. So you think it's hard now? Well, let's hope it doesn't have to get any harder. But yes, Simon, next bit. Um, next slide, please. So then what happened after Wesley and his friends, his brother Charles, George Whitfield, others, uh, came to know Jesus, were filled with the Spirit, they began preaching. Firstly, very important, they began to mobilize ordinary people to be church leaders. They didn't say you've got to go off and train and get ordained somewhere. They said, if you love Jesus and, you're, you know, and you want to live for him, we'll give you some theological training, we'll lay our hands on you, we'll commission you. And that's what we believe in this church. We believe that any of you can lead, any of you can baptize, 
any of you can uh, perform the sacraments, uh, do communion. We believe you, if you know Jesus, are a priest. And we just want to train you up to be a really good one. Um, We don't think there is a special class of people out there that are it. Well, that was something Wesley was passionate about. And as a result, suddenly all these converted coal miners and all the rest of it were preaching and ordaining and all the rest of it. Um, He also, Wesley, began to um, pioneer flexible models of ministry. And uh, so they had um, um, class systems that was just basically small groups meeting in homes. This was unthinkable. It's like our collectives in Emmaus, but no one did it. In fact, you were sort of banned from having kind of religious meetings outside of the parish church. But he said, we're going to do it. So people began to meet and disciple. And they were very challenging. They'd meet every week and say, you know, what sin are you being tempted to commit right now? You know, what means of grace has God provided to help you get free from that sin? And they were just really honest with each other. And it was a discipleship environment. And what you also saw in this uh, 21 year period, we tend to think, well, it was just like the Spirit of God fell and suddenly everything was on fire, was just certain hotspots, certain places in England where, you know, the churches were growing, leaders were being multiplied. It was a really, just certain places. It wasn't like every town, it wasn't, certainly wasn't every village, just certain places. And it's a bit like it is now. We could probably all name certain places in England where we know there are churches that are just growing and exciting things are happening. But generally, that wasn't the case. I want you to understand that because that's really encouraging, both how tough it was when this began and also how limited uh, uh, things were. And the reason it ends at, at 1759 is Wesley died uh, then. So by the time he died, he'd initiated some new models. Uh, he, he'd got, you know, uh, 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 um, some hot spots of renewal happening. Let's have the next slide. So uh, then in 1760, uh, sorry, I do beg your pardon. I got that completely wrong. Wesley doesn't die until 1790. We give him another 30 years, which is good by anyone's standards. Um, the, sorry, the, I got that completely wrong. The significance of 1760 is it's when the Industrial Revolution began. Uh, and, and just look at what that did to society. This is really significant, especially when you think about what's happening right now with ChatGBT, what's happening right now with AI, what's been happening with the, industri- with, with the information revolution. We seem to be in a similar period, but the industrialization, look at this shift in society. 1751, 5.8 million people were urban, which was 15% of the English population. But by 1760, when it begins, uh, look what then happens. Uh, Within, what is that, Uh, 40 years, 8.7 million, so 25% of the population is now urban. And then by 1850, 50% are urban. That is, people are just flooding into the cities. The cities are booming. And this was fertile ground for the new models of ministry that Wesley and his friends were pioneering. And uh, so just lay over that. That's why there's an arrow in there in that little gap as the Industrial Revolution is kicking off. Will, William Wilberforce is, is converted, who goes on to lead the fight against 
human trafficking against slavery and eventually wins it. That's when he's converted, discipled by John Wesley. The last letter John Wesley wrote was to Wilberforce, urging him to push on until we'd seen slavery abolished in the British Empire. Uh, 1788, uh, that was when the Methodists finally started meeting on Sundays because they were doing class systems up till then. Uh, 1789, you've got the French Revolution, so complete uh, anarchy on the other side of uh, the, the, the channel, and then Wesley dies, 1790. And so uh, by that stage, next slide, please. What Wesley sees, as it were, on his deathbed is there's about 72,000 Methodists. So that's not bad. Uh, there's 72,000 people in his church by then. Pretty good going. Uh, but he was John Wesley, so you know he had an advantage. And the class system, uh, discipleship mechanism is everywhere. And he's starting to see a new generation of social reformers like Wilberforce rising up, which leads me to the fact that it is after Wesley's death that all the stuff that we associate with a Wesleyan awakening kicked in. So let's look at the next slide. 1791 to 1835, so in those, uh, what's that, 44 years. First of all, William Carey, the great pioneer of, of global missions, uh, sails to India. I haven't got time to talk about William Carey. He was unbelievable, incredible, starting universities, teaching models of agriculture, a polymath, church planter, Incredible. Uh, George Muller, those of you familiar George Muller, who started orphanages and, 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 and literally fed and educated thousands of young people based down in Bristol, 1805. Florence Nightingale used to hang out at Waverley Abbey because her, her uncle owned it. Uh, the pioneer of nursing. That's why we our hospitals that Boris Johnson started called Nightingale uh, hospitals, uh, uh, 1820. 7th Earl of Shaftesbury, he was uh, in the House of Lords and he, he was a committed Christian who kept um, uh, fighting for legislation for the sake of the poor and, uh, and, and, and civilization, really, and uh, or, um, animal protection. That's Shaftesbury. All sorts of amazing initiatives because of his faith. Hudson Taylor, who was the great missionary to China, preaching the gospel, really the apostle to China. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, you know, today there are far more committed Christians in China than there are members of the, of the Communist Party. Uh, but, uh, and and these are paying an enormous price uh, to do what they do. But Hudson Taylor was in many ways a pioneer. Finally, 1833, Wilberforce, just before he dies, sees the Slavery Abolition Act in the British Empire. By the way, it was another generation before it happened in America. That awaited another revival in America led by um, uh, another man. Um, uh, uh, so so it, it was always movements of the spirit that resulted in these great moments of abolition. That's interesting if you're interested in the fight against human trafficking. 1844, William Booth was converted. There he is, bottom right, with his enormous beard, the original hipster who founded the Salvation Army. Actually, with his wife, Catherine, really, we should have Catherine up there because she was the real leaders as far as I can make out. Uh, but uh, you know, more people attended Catherine Booth's uh, funeral than Queen Victoria's funeral. That was the level of impact that they had had on so many poor people. They started businesses to elevate the poor. And that, again, that was all part of, uh, that, you know, he, he was converted in the Methodist before he started the Salvation Army. And so it goes Moravians to Wesley, Wesley to the Methodist, Methodist to the Salvation Army. Any of that all goes back to that Pentecost in Hanhut. 
And then the lots of revivals began to break out. One was in Northern Ireland, Coleraine. I told that story last Sunday about that beautiful school. So let's have the next slide. This period, listen to this. Remember I said by the time Wesley died, there were 72,000 Methodists. But in this third uh, sector, sector that we're looking at, the evangelical, that just really means Bible-believing Christians believe that being a Christian means having a relationship with God. The evangelical population grew to 55% of people in this country. 55, more than half, more than every other person you meet at work, at school, at college, is a committed follower of Jesus. But that happened long after Wesley died. By this stage, there are now one million Methodists, and they are growing at a rate of 4.5% per annum. That is just unbelievable. But it's all after Wesley. And then we talked about the Slavery Abolition Act. Now listen to this, and we'll, we'll sort of draw it together with this. It's the Sunday School Movement. This is just a lovely little story, uh, led by that uh, funny-looking chap, bottom right, uh, whose name uh, was Robert Rakes, who is down in Gloucester. He started this little thing on a Sunday. I, I know you'll think of Sunday school, no big deal. No, listen, this is the ultimate rock and roll. He, he, he said, I am going to take um, the local children and, and give them education because they weren't getting educated at school. These were the poorest of the poor. And he began on Sundays to gather them. Yes, he taught them the Bible, but he was teaching them. He was a newspaper editor, uh, but he was teaching them reading and writing and all the rest of it on Sunday. So you, you kind of went along to church, got a bit of God, but you also got a bit of education. And he started, he had 100 children in Gloucester that he was just pouring his time into on a Sunday. That then began to spread. Within 31 years, listen to this. There are 1.25 million children in this country who are going through Sunday schools, which is 25% of children. One in every four children uh, are being educated in the ways of God, but also in maths and reading and writing by the church. You want to know how you change a nation? You do that. And then by 1870... 70% of working-class children in this country are being educated by Christians on a Sunday. 70%. And that's why the football clubs all arose in that context. Most of the, 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 the great football clubs began out of the Sunday school movement because kids are coming together, they're learning, and they start kicking a ball around. And you've got the start of Charlton Athletic, and I could go on. So... Um, it's amazing, isn't it? Do you, I want you to see that how these things take time. I want you to be encouraged, therefore, that don't, don't give up if this is a long journey. If you're like, this feels like the wilderness, it's not quite as much of a wilderness as when Wesley started. Uh, I want you to see that maybe we'll work really hard just to see a bit of change, but if we're faithful, those we disciple, even if we don't see all the change, those we disciple will. And so if we can begin to think, maybe not just, and I know this is a really weird thing to be saying, many of you are in your 20s, but what about if we actually have to think in 100 years and not just in the next five years or 10 years? What if we actually say, I'm going to do my bit so the next generation doesn't have to do this again? What if I create a ceiling that becomes the floor for the next generation? Amen? You disciple 10 and they disciple 10 each. You've started to change entire communities. Okay? So next slide. 
Listen to this. This is a, a sociologist called J.D. Hunter. Without a fundamental restructuring of the institutions of culture, formation, and transmission, revival would have a negligible effect on the reconstitution of the culture. In other words, it's not enough just to get together and pray a lot and sing a lot and twitch a bit. I love it. I'm into it. I'm the guy who does that stuff. Don't hear, don't hear anything critical. We, this is where it begins. Remember what I've walked you through, the Moravian Pentecost, Wesley, you've knocked to the floor by the power of the Spirit. I'm into this stuff. But that alone doesn't just magically change society. We then have to change mindsets. We have to disciple people, start class systems, get into collectives, speak into one another's lives, help people get free out, out of addiction, walk through the 12-step program, help husbands and wives to be faithful to one another, teach people to forgive one another, go and volunteer at one of the life houses, uh, volunteer with the kids' work and the youth work. And, you know, we all like the stories, right, of Robert Rakes, or wouldn't that be cool, 70% of working-class kids. But what are we doing if we love that story and we don't volunteer to disciple one child somewhere? We're just in cloud cookie land. Uh, Joel there, he's poor, poor, whenever I see him, he's doing something to disciple kids. It's fantastic. And so we, as we do, and you say, yeah, but I don't feel I'm making a difference. That's why I wanted to walk you through 100 years. If we will be faithful filled with the Spirit, renewed by God day on day, so that Mimi's there encouraged because God spoke to her this evening. Her hope's thinking, okay, I can do what I do with Damon Albarn, and I'm going to keep listening to my Walkman, and I'm going to be all right. Or what, Am I allowed to talk about that? No, you're not. Anyway, with, with an unknown rock star. But you know, you, whatever it is, listen, if we keep being faithful, God will be faithful. And our faithfulness is this, but his faithfulness is eternal and it changes destinies. That's what we're going for. This is not what the culture is short-term and instant and all about feelings. I'm not interested. It doesn't change a thing. How do we live in such a way that we can change the very structure of society? Some of you are super clever and you should go and rethink how we do society. Some of you are teachers or you're called to teach. Some of you are kids workers and youth workers. Some of you just trying to get free of your own addictions. Whatever the next step is, this is how we prepare the way of the Lord in society. So finally, we'll finish, as I said, with that scripture we started with. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. And break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord. And I, I just, I, I wonder what the unplowed ground is for you. I wonder what the wilderness looks like for you. It's going to be different for each one of us. But we've each got a hard place that we look at and go, I've chucked seed at that and nothing's growing. I've tried my best and nothing's happening. And, and there's this call to break up the ground. To, to, to somehow um, open it up to the sowing of God's word. And uh, sometimes that's about waiting for the weather to change. You need some rain. Sometimes that's waiting for tragedies and crises to happen because people suddenly get open to God, if you've noticed that, when things go wrong in their lives. Sometimes it's about playing the long game and provoking questions without being so quick to give answers. Sometimes it's just about loving people more than they've ever been loved before, forgiving them more than they've ever been forgiven before. So eventually they go, you're doing my head in. What is it about you? You're either weird or you've got something. And you eventually go, 
well, all right, you forced me to tell you the hope that I have. His name is Jesus Christ. And so we break up the, unfallow ground, the fallow ground. And, uh, and, and you know, if, you, if you're trying to do that in social work, if you're trying to do that in politics, if you're trying to uh, break human trafficking, it's going to take time. There's going to be spiritual warfare. It's going to be really, really hard. But if we do it, he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And we're going to win. Is that okay? Not on our own, together. Not overnight, over the long term. But the story of the Wesleyan awakening that was so much bigger than Wesley himself tells us this can be done. It's happened before. It can happen again in this country. People around the world envy us this story. It's our story. Asbury, those of you into that, he was just one of the people that Wesley disciples and said, go and sort out America. I went and tried and I failed. I came back and... I had to get converted. Listen, this is our legacy, and it's time for us to pick it up and say, God, I've heard of your fame. I've heard of what you've done in the past. You haven't changed. The needs haven't gone away. Now, would you do them again in our day? Amen?